on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, we've almost made it to the halfway point, and as I often do, going through longer uh, studies in books of the Bible especially, uh, what we'll do is take a break and then come back to it a little bit later on, and that's what I want to do as we've reached this point. Uh, I'm going to preach messages today and next week that are focused on Christmas and the coming of Christ. And then on December the 27th, uh, my son Nathan is going to preach, and uh, he'll probably preach uh, again, possibly before he goes back south uh, to school. Uh, and then when we enter into January, uh, we're going to start a, a new focus that I'll uh, show to you and share with you uh, as we get going that I think are some things that we need to emphasize moving into a new year and uh, emphasizing as a church. But today, our primary text is from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and a message entitled, Never Alone, Never Alone. We all know that life is not the same at a social distance. Uh, older folks have struggled during these days with missing their families and the regular gatherings maybe that they're accustomed to. Children are missing their friends. Many students have missed out on uh, significant life celebrations only to have their diplomas mailed to them this year rather than having in-person celebrations. Weddings and funerals have been disrupted. Meals and events with family and friends have been called off. And life on hold is a very lonely experience. Someone termed what we've experienced as a social recession marked by growing loneliness and isolation. If we're honest, though, we would say that even before the pandemic set in, we were dealing with the reality of this being a major issue. Many people struggling with loneliness and isolation in their lives. One study by The Economist found that about one-fourth of adults say that they struggle with loneliness. The health insurer Cigna says that it's much higher than that with more than half of people struggling with this issue. And we know that loneliness is more than a bad feeling. It can harm your health. It can uh, make your productivity suffer. And it can rob from you a sense of life fulfillment. And of course, we can do some things practically to help remedy this. We can proactively communicate regularly with the people that we love and check in on people. Uh, we can take the initiative to reach out and help people that might especially be alone or do something to contact them and encourage them. But all of us have a much deeper spiritual need. And that deeper spiritual need teaches us that the only way loneliness can truly be resolved in our lives is if we know the one personally who has created us and who sustains us, who has saved us, and will ultimately take us home to be with him. So the heart of my message today is this, God created you for a relationship with him. And when you know him by faith, you will never be alone. He calls you first to himself, and then he calls you in to a community of believers. 
the family of God. And in that, we find our community. In that, we find our fellowship. In that, we live out what it means to be loved with an everlasting love. And I think it's not enough just to know that God is up there somewhere, as people commonly speak of him, or God is out there somewhere in a general sense. You need to know that God has come down to where you are. God knows your name, and God cares about you. And because he has come down to where you are, he knows your name, and he cares about you. Because of his love, you are never alone. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, during the reign of a king named Ahaz, Isaiah the prophet predicted the birth of the one who would be God coming to dwell among men. Isaiah predicted that a virgin would conceive and would give birth to a son, Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 and verse 14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The corresponding fulfillment of that prophecy is found in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now you remember, because this is a familiar story to most of us, that when Joseph discovered that Mary was in fact expecting, he at first suspected the worst, and he decided to privately put her away rather than to publicly suffer shame. But the angel of the Lord came to him and reassured him that the baby in the womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that they were to call his name Jesus, which means God saves because he would save his people from their sins. The angel quoted from Isaiah 7 and verse 14, with his prophecy of the virgin birth and the name Emmanuel, God with us. Many hymns and songs have been sung about this theme. A classic Christmas hymn was written based on the idea of Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. So I'm going to ask and answer this question in these moments that we have together. How can we live in the promise that God is with us? How can we experience this reality and it not just be a theological truth or a set of doctrines that helps us understand the significance of it? How can we live in the promise that God is with us? Well, first of all, to live in the promise, you need to know that Jesus is the Son and is God with us. Now, we refer to this concept of God with us as the incarnation. Incarnation means the act of being made flesh. It speaks of the fact that God took on human flesh and was born as a man, that God descended from heaven to earth in a stable in Bethlehem of Judea, Christ is God in the flesh. 
And I believe that the incarnation is a central, essential, and non-negotiable truth. There is significant support for the humanity of Jesus in the New Testament. He slept when he was tired. He ate when he was hungry. He needed physical protection at times. He sweated and he bled. He experienced a range of emotions from joy to sorrow to righteous anger or indignation. And he referred to himself as a man. And even after the resurrection, the humanity of Jesus was still very evident. I think coupled with this is also the significance or the importance of understanding the eternal sonship of Christ. And I do believe in the eternal sonship of Christ, which has been the predominant view throughout church history, that the second person of the triune Godhead has eternally existed as the Son, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in essence and three in person co-equal and co-eternal. Some have said that Jesus only became the Son of God when he was born. I believe that he is eternally the Son of God. And while Christ came in the flesh, there was never a time when he was not. So he's not a created being. He is called the Son of God, and he became man and manifested deity in the presence of of all people. Now John's gospel puts it this way in John chapter 1. I want to read three verses, verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Understand that the Son of God already existed in eternity past. The Son of God was in eternal fellowship with the Father. And the Son of God was and is God. So this idea of the eternal Sonship of Christ is a biblical truth. And it's also a truth that's been held by Christians throughout church history. Now, it's often helpful for us to look back and see what people thought about things in the past. Sometimes we'll find that they believed heretical things that were not true. But at other times, we'll find that they believed things that were clearly biblical, that were passed down as an understanding of what the Scripture was teaching. One such instance of that is in the Nicene Creed, which was issued or written in 325 A.D. And I want to read in part what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. 
for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. He begins and says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. You say, wait a minute, without controversy? There's always been controversy about what has been believed. I think what Paul was saying was, there ought not be any controversy because it's true and it's evident. It's on display, the truth of God. And then he says, God was manifested in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. He was justified in the spirit. Jesus was declared to be what he always was, completely righteous and justified before the Father. He was seen by angels. The ministry of Jesus is of particular focus for the angels and of their interest. He was preached among the Gentiles. The message is declared among the nations for the glory of God. He was believed on in the world. The only way that we can know Jesus is by faith. And he was received up into glory. And Jesus ascended up into heaven in that resurrected body that eternally retains the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, the wound in his side, the marks of suffering. And when we are someday in the presence of Jesus and we come to worship and to adore him, those nail prints in his hands and his feet and the piercing in his side, the marks of his suffering will be eternally visible to remind us of the price that was paid for our salvation. Jesus is the Son and is God with us. Second, to live in the promise, you need to know that Jesus is the Savior and is God with us. He's the Savior and is God with us. Now, why did the Son of God come? To seek and to save the lost, to be the Savior of the world. And you know how we take great care in choosing the names of our children They have significance and they mean something. Well, the name that was given to Jesus is, in fact, quite significant. Matthew 1 and verse 21 says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then it says this, For he will save his people from their sins. Now, I've not counted myself, but I read somewhere that the name Jesus appears in the New Testament 1,274 times. That's a lot of times. That's a significant emphasis. And when the Father gave the name, he knew that it would fit everything that the Son had come to do. So I say to you today that the name Jesus is a saving name. We cannot study the Christmas account without also looking to the cross. Jesus was born to save, and his salvation carried a massive price. It was the cost of the life of the only Son of God. God the Father gave his only Son. God the Son willingly gave himself for us. And there's only one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus the Son. The name Jesus is a beautiful name. It reveals what he would one day do, that he would save his people from their sins. It tells us that there is a Savior. 
The name of Jesus is a joyful name. It fits the joy of the season and the joy that Jesus brings. In fact, just when we utter the name Jesus, it should bring joy to our hearts as a reminder of what God has done and as a reminder of the eternal love that God has for us. And the name Jesus is an unrivaled name. There's coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has no rivals. It is his glory alone. And we will either say that name in salvation or we will recognize that name in judgment. And then the name of Jesus is an enduring name. Our future in heaven is described in Revelation 22 and verse 4, where the Bible says they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Jesus is the Savior and is God with us. Third, to live in the promise, you need to know that Jesus is the shepherd and is God with us. He's the Son, He's the Savior. And he's the shepherd of our souls. At the birth of Jesus, the only recorded appearance of the angels in the Bible was to shepherds. There's great symbolism in the fact that uh, the shepherds received the message. The historian Paul Meyer said, if we resort to symbolism, the shepherds stood for the cross-sectional average Judean. Quite literally, the man on the night shift. Shepherds had a difficult job that earned them no rank in society, yet God chose them to receive the message of the birth of Jesus. Understand that the message to the lowly shepherds was that Jesus came for all people, but he was ultimately born for all who would believe in him by faith. Now, we see this idea of shepherding in the Bible. We see the importance that God places on it. After all, God presents himself in the Old Testament as the shepherd of his people. Probably the most well-known passage of scripture in the Old Testament for many is the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. We're familiar with it. It brings a calm to our souls because we're reminded of God as our shepherd. God also presented the people that he entrusted with leadership of his people. He referred to them as shepherds. He drew a sharp contrast between the faithful shepherds and the unfaithful shepherds, and he spoke of the consequences that would come on the unfaithful shepherds. And the shepherds, when they received the good news, were, were eager to receive it. In fact, they hurried to find Jesus. They were quick to spread the word about him to others. They glorified and they praised God. And like Isaiah the prophet, Micah the prophet foretold in chapter 5 and verse 2 of his prophecy, but you, Bethlehem of Pathra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Jesus came to be our shepherd. And Jesus revealed his great love for us when he spoke of himself as the good shepherd. He said in John chapter 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd is inherently righteous. 
And as the shepherd of his people, he's the one who saves and protects and guides and nurtures his flock. And there's a bit of a mystery here because the title most often applied to Jesus in the book of Revelation is a title that he carries into eternity, and that is the Lamb of God. Now let's think about this for a moment. The good shepherd became a lamb in order to save his flock. He was willing to do that. And we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish or defect. Jesus is the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, he is God with us. He's the son of God, and he is eternally so. He's the savior of all who call on him in repentance and faith. And he is the shepherd of our souls as the good shepherd. He leads us along the way. He's ever present with us. And he sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter and our counselor so that we can say emphatically that we are never alone when we are in him. So I ask you this question as I come toward the close of the message today and we prepare our hearts for a time of participating in the Lord's table. Do you know Jesus? Now, I'm not just talking about in a transactional sense. There are so many people that think of their salvation only as the moment in which they got saved. And listen, if there's not a moment in which you got saved, then you're not saved. Because there has to be a point in which the gospel comes into our lives and because of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that we are lost sinners and the only way we can be reconciled to God is through faith in Him. And when we repent and believe and we come to Jesus, He gives us the gift of eternal life, He forgives us of our sins, and He sets us on a path that is a path of following Him for the rest of our lives and someday we're going to be with Him in eternity. But if your salvation is only thought of in terms of the moment of salvation, then you have missed out on the fullness of what it means to be saved and to live as a child of God and to serve him with your life. You see, when God sent Jesus into the world at Christmas, he was extending an invitation to flee from sin and to be reconciled to God. And it's there that we find eternal fellowship with the one who created us and who redeems us. One preacher said, for those who face loneliness during this season of the year, take comfort in this fact. God's answer to loneliness is not a theory or an abstract doctrine or a book to read or even a seminar to attend. It's not a better job or more friends or another movie to watch or another song to sing. And it's not even the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. God's answer to loneliness is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who will never leave you or forsake you. Loneliness can only be overcome through a relationship with Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you will never be alone. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray and we prepare uh, for the table. I want to extend to you an invitation to come and follow Jesus. 
Maybe you're listening to this message here in the room or online, or you might listen to it later on. And you would have to say that you've never been saved. You've not been forgiven of your sins. You don't have the gift of eternal life. Well, God is calling you through his only son to repent of your sins and to believe in the Savior, to have your life eternally transformed. That if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. Would you want to be saved today under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to say yes to Jesus and come and follow him? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got so much to be thankful for. Friends, you might have felt lonely this year. You might be feeling lonely right now because of all that's going on. I want to remind you in these moments that Jesus promised he'd never leave you nor forsake you. He's ever present with you and he loves you. Be encouraged today because of this great truth. Is there anything in your heart or your life that as a Christian would hinder your relationship with God that you need to confess a sin so that you're not partaking of this table in an unworthy manner? Now would be the time to claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's speaking in terms of our fellowship with God. Is there something in your life that you need to get right with God? Would you just give God the praise and the glory for all the good and what he's done through his son? Father, we honor you now. We ask that Jesus would be exalted, that as we partake of the bread and the cup, that we would be reminded of the significance of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and that as a collective family of believers that we would proclaim our anticipation of his return again, that there would be a crown laid up in heaven for all of us because we have loved his appearing. We have proclaimed the gospel while we await his return. And may you be honored and glorified in our midst, Lord Jesus. And may it draw together our church in unity of spirit and unity of purpose. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.